0: Mark, and we um, will be a number of places in Scripture tonight, but we'll start there in the book of Mark. If you wouldn't have your lesson sheet, it says at the top, giving the good news, expanding the family. So make sure you have that particular lesson sheet tonight, and uh, we'll look at a few things there. you notice it's a little shorter than it has been. We're going to have an opportunity a little later this evening to speak with each other, share some of our own testimony with each other, and I uh, hope that after the last few weeks, uh, that you'll see the importance of being able to do that. So we're going to practice a little bit this evening. Last week, we practiced at the end. Uh, we took some time and we had a variety of topics and we listed some things out and said, here's kind of the mainline news of the week. How would you turn these conversations to towards something spiritual? And we took news headlines, we took events that could happen in people's lives and examples of those things We said, how could you turn this to a spiritual conversation that might give you the opportunity to at least profess your own faith before someone in the gospel? And more than that, give the opportunity to show or explain the gospel to others. And a group that I was in did a great job with that. Actually didn't even make our way, weren't able to even get through all of them because uh, there are so many ways to turn a conversation toward the Lord If we really look for it, if we really examine it, and if we really seek to explain those things. and I hope that that was an encouragement to you. We may do a little bit of that again this evening, but particularly uh, with our testimony. So I want you to look, if you would, first tonight at Mark chapter number 4. And as we begin, or as we start, I want you to think about this. The fact that the New Testament, particularly, unmistakably makes it clear that God has called his church to be the the main agency the, the the primary way in which the gospel of Jesus is spread around the world there are other ways that it happens and that is important uh, we send teenagers and young people to camps and summer camps and that's important there's a lot of people that have been saved or their lives been changed through a summer camp or what they've been doing uh there in those ministries some people and make sure i'm still on here make sure some of you all even have been saved through some sort of gospel effort or a revival service or a large crusade in a city or whatever it may have been and there's all sorts of different ways that people can hear the gospel am i still on does that just make sense i am green but i don't know what happened i might just have to go here because i think i've destroyed it again on accident somehow, but we'll just start here. Um, but many of you have been saved in other ways, and other facets. The gospel can be spread other ways. However, the main primary way that God has chosen to see that done is through His church. And not just the church as an organization, but the church as people. The people that make up the church are to share and give the gospel First with our families, that's the primary way. Did you know that? Think about that. The the primary way that your family is to know and understand the gospel is first through you as an individual Christian. It's not simply the job or the responsibility of the preaching service of the church body or even the teaching classes of the church body. It's the church people that are first responsible to share the gospel and so with your own families it begins there and then beyond that to our friends and to our loved ones and uh, those that we meet or strangers that we come with and then you see there in your notes that in Matthew 28 that great commission that God gives us it's not just for a part of the church or for his apostles but it's for all of the church And then for all generations, think about the end of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse number 20. It says, after he tells us to go and teach all nations, how does it all end? He says, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end, what? Of the world. Well, Jesus is omniscient. He knows his apostles aren't going to live to the end of the world. So who is he talking about when he says, I'm with you to the end of the world? He's talking about all the church for all generations, And so as we think about that tonight, there are uh, some things that uh, we want to focus on for a moment, some responsibilities that we have as a church, not just to share the gospel, but then to expand the family of God as people receive the gospel. So I want you to look, if you would, in Mark chapter 4, verse number 1. It says, And he began again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, So that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine, Harken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. So here comes his parable. It came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. And the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it scorched, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, some a hundredfold, and this is what it's speaking there, And he said unto them, He that hath ears, let him hear. And then he gives us the mystery of the parable. Notice, if you would, down in verse number 13, for time's sake, says, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word. and These are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who... When when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure. But for a time and afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the works sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, and some sixty, and some a hundred. So he gives this parable, and I want us to think for a moment tonight as we sort of launch out into this. I want you to notice that he's speaking about the word being sown. That's the seed, the gospel being sown into people's lives. And the soil that it refers to is the hearts of mankind. It is how it's received in the soul or in the person of a man. And ultimately, people are responsible for their own response to the Gospel. But there are things that contribute to how someone responds to the Gospel that truthfully, hopefully, the Holy Spirit intervenes and works in their life. But there are contributing factors that come in that that affect how someone that is said they've received the gospel, or at least listens to the gospel, how they respond to it can be affected from the outside. And I want you to think about those. He, he gives us these four illustrations, and he just mentions them quickly. He says, you know, one, it's like seed falling on a hard path, and it never really sinks in, and Satan swoops in, and even though they've heard that gospel and that word, it's taken away from them, and it doesn't take root even at all. And, and we all know people, I want you to think for a moment, we've talked for several weeks now about giving the gospel, teaching people through His Word, walking through God's Word, introducing God to people, or introducing people to God, but ultimately it's up to them how they respond. And how many of us have experienced that, where we've given the gospel, we've taught someone God's Word, but then it's just like it never really grasps And Satan seems to come in or something evil or something from the outside world seems to come in and just kind of sweep it away, pick it up, take it away. And it never really grabbed root. Then you have this second description where he talks about that which went into kind of shallow ground. You picture just a little bit of soil. I kind of picture the parking lot grass that seeps into the cracks that incessantly never stops returning But eventually, most of it dies when the sun really comes up and burns hot. Except for Virginia crabgrass, it seems to thrive in that moment. But eventually it dies, why? Because there's nothing there to really, there's no nutrient, there's nothing there to really take root. It's a little bit of mud and dirt that's washed into those cracks over time. And it's the picture of soil having, but having nowhere to really gain root and grasp and grow. Then you have this third picture and he describes, it takes root, it takes hope. There's a lot of other things around it that eventually overcome it. It describes thorns and weeds that grow up around it and sort of choke the life out of it. If you have, <clears throat> in my yard when we first moved in, it has uh, we live kind of near the woods, in the midst of the woods, and there's huge trees out in the front. And I went in and I was like, I'm going to make this look amazing yard. And so I went out and bought Grass. It wasn't like nine hundred dollars a bag like it is now. Then, so I bought some grass and and sowed it, and it looked awesome. I put it out in the fall. I did some landscaping work growing up, so I kind of knew sow it in the fall, plant it. It grows through the winter, and then it's really established, and it looked awesome all the way till about March, and then the trees that were over it started growing leaves, and the sun was sort of blocked out, and then below it, those tree roots really started to grasp all the water as. As the rain sort of spread out and eventually all of that. If you come to my house now, you'd never know ever that there was grass in most of my front yard because there's nowhere for it to go. There's moss there and that's about it. There's nowhere, there, there's no way for it to get what it needs. It's overcrowded and it's under shrouded by, by those things that kind of take away the water, the nutrients, everything that it needs to get to be able to grow. And I want you to think about the lives of people that we went through. And then, of course, the last example is the good soil. It's got sun. There's nothing impeding it. There's nothing taking over it. It's got depth and room to grow the way that it should. And the gospel takes hold in someone's life. And they thrive by it. And that's what we all want. But Jesus is giving us a very realistic picture of how the gospel works. That that is not always what happens. And the point in Jesus' parable here is he's speaking about soil and he's just giving an example because he's giving to his disciples look over the next few years as we minister and people hear the gospel there are people that are going to very quickly react but then are going to eventually fall away there are going to be people that look like they're growing well but then other things are going to come in and take away their attention from me they're not going to grow anymore there are going to be people that we throw out the gospel and we give it and just it never even takes root you think of some of the Pharisees' lives and others, the, the rich young ruler and others that he, he gave the gospel to, but it never took root. But I want us to think for a moment about a challenging thought or, or fact. We cannot carry out for someone their responsibility to respond to the gospel. You and I cannot do that. As much as we want to for our own kids and those that we teach about God, we want to be able to really help them make those decisions and follow God but we can't. It ultimately is an individual soul responsibility is how we would teach it from Scripture. But within that individual soul responsibility, there are things and people that God uses to help prepare the way for the gospel and for growth in their lives. And I think that if we think about people in our lives, it would be sad to throw... See, you know, some of this the sower cannot control, right? He throws it out on the road and, and it sits there and the birds come get it. Now, he could shoot the birds, but eventually other birds are going to keep come getting it. It's just not going to take root. But there are other things that the, that the sower can do to try to help the soil receive and grow and be nourished by what it has been given. You think about there, it says that there was really no depth. What would you do to soil that was packed hard or at least underneath it had rocks or roots, or well, you would dig that up and try to help plow those things under to try to remove the things that would rob it of nourishment. If there's thorns that grow up in someone's garden, then you try to go in and remove those things. If there's weeds that take the nourishment, and you try to help see those things taken aside. Now, there's some aspects of life that we're not going to be able to intervene in every moment of anyone's life that we're trying to teach a disciple. However... Would a sower be a good sower that simply threw out his seed and just hoped for the best? That's not a good sower. That's not a good farmer. They do what they can to help the growth as they sow. And so the same is true in our lives. We give the gospel to people. And we remember, you see there, number one, that we must remember there's nothing better or more beautiful than that God is willing to save people Jesus is willing to liberate people with His sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit is willing to dwell in the lives of those that receive the gospel. But we also have to remember, and if you would, look at Romans 10 for a moment, we also have to remember that the gospel is spread by words, and then it grows in people's lives by the teaching and the discipleship and the nourishment of other Christians, that we are responsible to help those that come to Him. So I want us to think about this as we kind of close out this study. How is it that we help people once they give the gospel? It's not like completing a sale. You never notice when you're you're trying to buy something. I think about it with buying a car. um, You know, whatever. Like, when you're buying a car, the salesman they're like the most connecting person you've ever met. Like, any problem you've ever had, they've also had. Like, however many kids you have, that's how many kids they have too. Whatever your grandkids are into, that's what their grandkids are into. They connect on the most base human level of anyone I've ever met. But then they pass you off to the finance guy. Have you ever noticed this? You never hear or see that car salesman ever again. (laughs) Ever. I mean, you never see them. They just poof, they disappear. It's like they get shifted to some other car person somewhere else. And you're like, I thought you were my friend. And especially a year later when that car proves to be a lemon and it's breaking down, that car salesman is nowhere around to help you, right? That cannot be the case in the church. Because we're not selling something to lost people. We are offering eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so when it is received, it is not on to the next. You get no commission on who you bring to the gospel. There is reward in heaven, I truly believe, and that God rewards those that serve Him. But there's no commission, so I have to blast my way to the next. It is just as horrible as imagining bringing a child into this world and then leaving it to fend for itself. We would never do that. And yet we see people, not even just in the moment of their initial conversion to the gospel, but sometimes we see people that are just young and struggling in their faith and it's like we're almost entertained. It's like we, it, it's like we almost would cast lots or, or make a bet. I bet they could make. They're probably going to make it. They're probably not. And then we stand back and we just watch. And then you know what's even worse as Christians is when someone does start to fall away, when someone does remove not just from church attendance but from their faith in general, and you realize it. it what, what took hold in their life is fading away quickly. Our normal response sometimes is to cross our arms and point our nose up in disdain and be like, I knew that wouldn't last. How awful is that? Can you imagine? Someone thought that about us at some point. It's not going to last. But by the grace of God, hopefully it has. So we're not to treat people this way. I want you to think about in Romans chapter 10. Look at, if you would, at verse number 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved glorious truth right i mean that's our hope uh, what other hope do we have as individuals and as sinners and failures in this world that i can stand before the lord and say i can be saved by faith in him what other hope do we have for others those that we love and those that we want to see brought to the gospel what other hope do we have on that, They can be saved if they believe and come to the Lord by grace and repentance in Him, by by faith. And that's a good truth, but then notice what he attaches to it. We see in verse 13, this is great truth. Whoever calls on God's name is going to be saved, but, verse 14, how are they going to do that? How then shall they call upon Him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And... How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah, sa- Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I want you to think about this. You cannot, we cannot lose sight of the fact that the gospel is communicated by words. But then, growth has to happen in the life of a believer, young believer, also by words. First, by the Word of God seeding into their own life. But most new believers cannot just, they don't just pick up God's Word and praying all of a sudden, they're magic Christian. It doesn't happen that way. God designed us to mentor and bring on and disciple those that He has brought into the faith. And so I want us to think about that. There's a logical kind of sequence that happens in the life of a new believer. And we have to remember that when somebody becomes a new believer, they are being brought into a new family and into a new position. Flip over a page or so probably to Romans chapter 8, verse number 16. Romans 8, verse 16. It says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children. Notice this. We are children. The children of God. All of us are the children of God, and God has no favorites. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, joint heirs, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. I want you to think about what it's saying there. We, together, are the children of God. We are joint heirs. It's being combined. It's not that one inherits more of God than another. This is the way God designed to give us all, all of Himself. And so we have all been brought into this new family, in this new position. Some are not better than others, and some are not supposed to be better equipped than others. We are all to be brought into the family of God. How silly is it then for us to reject our new family? We won't read the others for time's sake, but if you would, eventually read the verses there in Ephesians and Colossians that speak to this. I want you to think about the logical sequence of events that should take place in the life of a believer. And let's note that there you have some of them on your notes and you have a little bit of room to jot in a little bit extra. But look at John chapter 5, if you would, for a moment. John chapter 5 and verse number 24. John chapter 5 and verse 24. There's a logical sequence of events that has to happen in the life of a believer. And one of the first things is assurance. Assurance of our salvation. We believe as Christians that you can be assured of your salvation. You can be sure of it. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to trust somebody else's word about it. You don't have to have somebody tell you how much penance you need to serve in order to be sure. You you don't have to have another family member help you after you die to be sure that you've gotten there. You can be assured of your salvation. Now let me also say, this should happen very quickly in the life of a believer. It should be something that is promoted, something that is introduced to the life of a new believer, but it doesn't stop at the life of a new believer. It continues all throughout our lives as Christians that we continually find assurance of our salvation, not in ourselves, but in the work of Jesus Christ. Notice if you would, and aren't you glad that your assurance rests there, not in how you handled today, and not in what you've been like for the last three months or three weeks or the last year or how the last—I don't know—decade, however long we've been grumpy. You know, it doesn't rest on those things. Notice John chapter five, look at verse twenty-four. Verily, verily, I say unto you, now notice this, he that heareth my word, that's the initiation with the gospel. Okay, that's, they're sort of introduced to it. The one that hears my word, and then notice the next phrase, and believeth on him that sent me. So you have this introduction, he that hears the, the word, the one that hears the gospel, what's his responsibility? How is he going to be assured of his salvation? What is his responsibility toward the gospel that he believes? So you hear, and then you believe. And then what's the result? Notice, he has everlasting, or he hath everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Notice that the bulk of that verse concentrates on the result, doesn't it? Why? Because God is the one that does the work. Notice it says, he that hears the word, he that hears the gospel, And then there's not this huge explanation in the middle of what you have to do with the Gospel to actually receive it. It's not like a lock that you figure out the formula and the code and then it finally, hours later, unlatches. It's not a... I'm not into this, but maybe you are. It's not a Sudoku puzzle that you start with a couple of numbers and hours later, maybe you're fast, minutes later, you've solved it. Praying, I've got it all figured out. It doesn't say that. He hears and he believes The responsibility is that he believed. And he's done that. So what ends up being the result? Notice what it says. He has everlasting life. And then what else? He has no condemnation. And then what else? He passes from death into life. Notice the result far outweighs the responsibility. That is the glory of the gospel. It is not that the result of your salvation is equivalent to the work that you put in for the result doesn't do that the result is the same regardless of the person anyone that believes receives these three things it doesn't matter if your faith was skeptical initially if there was some doubt and confusion if you didn't word the prayer the right way or if when you received christ as savior it took you months to stop struggling with a certain thing or years later you still struggle with whatever sin it may be or a doubt in your mind it doesn't, mean, it doesn't say that eventually you get all three of these things if you follow well enough. No. Hear, believe, and then you receive these things. And a believer, a new believer, needs to be assured of this. We, we preach the Gospel to them that it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by His mercy, His grace, His power, His faith in Him alone, grace, and repentance through Christ alone. We preach that as the gospel. But it also must then be reinforced and reassured because there are days that we don't feel like it worked, right? There are days where we're just not sure. And there are days where we struggle with doubt. And the assurance does not come in our performance. The assurance comes in God's promise. And notice these Three promises that are mentioned in this particular verse. Eternal life. You will never come under condemnation. And then it speaks that you have moved from death into life. And there's this assurance that happens. Then notice a second, there's an acceptance that happens. There's this new believer that has that is accepted by God based on Jesus' perfection, not his own. He, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 says he has made us accepted in the beloved. In the same way that in Matthew chapter 3, God descends from heaven like a dove and says of His Son, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased that I have accepted. Isn't it amazing that this great demonstration that God the Father makes toward His Son through the Spirit. He sends His Spirit down and it audibly says, this is My Son and I am pleased with Him. Ephesians one six says of the believer, remember what it says? He has made us accepted. or as the beloved. So in the same way that God audibly speaks about His own physical Son, the Son of God, come to save the world, I am pleased with this one. God looks at every child and believer of God on this earth and says, I accept you. Now, it doesn't mean that He accepts our sin. Don't let that be a confusion for us. But He accepts us as people because He accepts us as Christ. Isn't that amazing truth? That God sees us as He sees His only Son. And the new believer must be reassured of this. That it is not how well you're going to perform for the next few weeks that, that makes it whether or not you're really saved or you're really not. You don't have to now earn what God has given you. Isn't that an amazing truth of the Gospel? That you do, there is no way tomorrow or this week that you will make yourself any more worthy of the gospel. But I don't think that we always portray that to people very well. Like we, we say, eh, you know, we messed up, you know, whatever it may be. We've got to kind of earn back what God has already given to us. It's relying on Christ, not ourselves. And then notice there's also an adoption. That These are all things that the believer receives immediately, but have to be kind of taught or reassured in their lives. Not only adoption from God Himself, but think about this from God's family. Because isn't it amazing if someone that is, safe, that is unsaved, they're lost in sin, headed to hell, and God adopts that person, brings them from, as the enemy of God, into His family. We rejoice in that. And we, I mean, hopefully we should, we should get stirred a little when we think that the Creator God of the universe, who sees and knows every failing that we've ever had in our entire lives, is willing to bring us in as his child. And that is an amazing thing. But how difficult it would be for a new child to believe that he has been accepted by God when he has not been accepted by God's family. Let us think in for a moment. How difficult would it be for a new believer To have assurance that he is God's child when God's family keeps them at distance. It's discouraging. And it doesn't mean, again, in the same way that God does not accept or receive someone's sin, but he does forgive it, and he does redeem it, and he does help lead people away from it. And in the same way, his family, God does not say, get your life right and then come to me. He says, come to me and I will fix your life. And in the same way, God's family should not turn others aside and say, get your life fixed, and then you can be a part of us. Who gave you that authority? Who gave me that type of authority to say, well, when you get all this lined up and figured out, then you can really be a part of us. No. God, from the first moment, says, you are my beloved child. He sees us in the same way that He sees His Son, Jesus Christ, Why should I have eyes for someone that are any different than his? And then he says, there should be assurance, there's acceptance, there's an adoption that we have to convey to people. How do we do that? There's a hunger in which we try to bring a believer to help them continue to grow hungry and to learn. Now again, this is not all your responsibility and my responsibility. There is a responsibility, individual, soul responsibility for someone to grow in their relationship with God However, we can either discourage or encourage it, one or the other, right? We we really can. Like, if you've ever tried to convince somebody to come do something with you that you didn't want to do, and you sell it as it's going to be miserable, and it's going to be awful, and it's boring, and you wish you didn't have to do it, then why would a new believer ever want to do it with us? Why would He ever want to grow if we portray a life in relationship with God that is miserable? We can encourage or discourage. I can't help but think about Mark 4, the 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 parable of the sower. And when those thorns sprout out, you know what we think our thorns? Sometimes when we read that passage, well, there's this new believer. They're planted. And they're starting to grow quickly. And then there's the sin of the world and it comes after them. And then there's the desires of the flesh. And then there's the interests of self, and then there's the old sin that creeps into their life and it squelches out the growth that God has given. And that's true. All those things can do that and be thorns. But so can we. When a new believer is planted and it grows up and believers around them impress on them ideas or mindsets, kind of like we studied this morning, that are from ourselves and not from God's law exactly, but they're our own decisions, or are our own things that we force on others, or our own problems, or our own struggles, or our own doubts, and, and we live our lives. You know what? We can be awful prickly as well and discourage growth for a new believer in Christ because it's like, well, now you're part of the family, so now you're really going to see what being a Christian is like. Well, some of that is because we don't have the relationship that we should with God, so we don't portray the relationship that they should have with God. And so as we bring a believer and somebody comes to new life in Christ, it is just as important that we bring them past the moment of salvation with love and tenderness, love, tenderness, mercy, and grace. We should not be the car salesman that relates and then disappears. It can't be us. Or I hate to harp if you're a car salesman, I'm sorry, but I hate to harp on a car sales again. There's the car salesman that Relates and then disappears. And then there's also the car sales that relates and then gets ticked off and rejects you. Why does that normally happen? When you're like, "Mm, I can't do do that price. Or you're like, well, I'm just looking. I'm not going to buy today, but in a few months, I'm interested. I just want to get an idea for it. Suddenly, all the relatability just disappears. And, And when they realize that you are not what they expected you were going to be, suddenly the bro relationship I had with this guy is gone. Why Why are you no longer my good friend? That's what I think. And the same is true. The same is true with new converts, with those that are trying to even, maybe not even even come all the way into the faith, but they're examining, they're looking, they're seeking, they're skeptic. And what they experience from a believer is someone who shows interest until it's no longer convenient, or they show interest until it costs something of their lives. You know, interacting with somebody on a Sunday morning for a few minutes before after church, it's important, but that cannot be the extent of encouragement that we have in the life of someone who's seeking Jesus or has recently come to know him by faith. That can't be it. It's going to cost us something. But our salvation costs Jesus everything. So why would we not? You see there the final discipleship and education. That this is often, yes, accomplished in church teaching, but far deeper than that, it's accomplished through a combination of relationships in church teaching. When you think about this, the truth is that most likely in your life, what helped you grow most as a Christian throughout your life, has been relationships with other Christians. Aside from the work of the Holy Spirit, most likely, if I were to say, why are you the Christian you are today? What kind of helped you grow in this way or that way? You may think of a sermon. You might think of a lesson in a class or a series of classes that you took. You might think of a book that you read. But almost assuredly, we're all going to think of people that influenced us people that that laid into us that poured their life into us that were willing to be vulnerable that were willing to know us and all of our issues and also to be known and share those things with each other and not keep at a distance but grow together in christ most of us can think people it might be your spouse it might be someone in your family it might be someone from this church it could be a pastor a teacher a friend but most of us think of people well how are other people going to grow in christ if we won't be their people like if we won't take the time and we're not willing to get involved with the mess and we won't give ourselves to it how will it ever happen the truth is it just doesn't It takes people that are willing to invest, that are willing to ask, I'll say it this way, the lull of the second question that goes beyond how are you and they ask something else. That goes beyond the initial surface level conversation but is willing to teach and take on and answer the difficult and the hard questions. Again, I'll go back to the car salesman. Right? Right? You go back and you say, "Well, I want to buy this car," and we know the very famous phrase now from the last few years, "Show me the car facts right? You know has it ever been in an accident? If you notice they they can get out of that conversation very quickly somehow, how many miles does this have on it what's is that the actual price, or is there going to be more past the base price and you know, you ask questions, then they get uncomfortable like i don't know what it is about. That, but they just get uncomfortable at that point, and they move on to something else. We can't be that way with other Christians, but we are with, with new Christians, especially. We get uncomfortable with questions, don't we? They, they don't have any. Have you ever notice that a child can make you so vulnerably uncomfortable in like five words? Like they can make you feel like like my kids. I've heard it gets worse when they're teenagers, but my kids are four well we'll be this week four six and eight and, then, and i there are moments they can make me feel like the strongest smartest person in the world and then there's like a couple questions that I can, can can ask and it makes me feel like the most foolish person in the, in the world i have no idea about anything and they will let me know that they realize that i don't know anything about the anything that i try to talk about or i try to give an explanation and then they ask for a deeper explanation. And then they realize, eh, he didn't know what he was talking about. Right? They can make you do that. And we feel vulnerable. And we don't want that, right, from new believers. So it's like, let me tell you the gospel. You should receive this and understand it. And then I'll get out of the way. You figure everything else out on your own. It can't be that way. And whatever is making us uncomfortable at times with new believers... Or with those that are seeking and those that are new to the faith or searching for faith. We, what, what does it take from us? Reliance on God. Willingness to look foolish at times. Willingness to say, I'm not sure. You know, it will help your faith about as much as anything else. And by faith, I mean your knowledge of God's word in, in that sense and, and affirming what you believe is actually having to answer someone about what you believe. It's one thing to teach the lesson by reading it from the book in school. It's another to actually have to do the science experiment in front of children or in front of teenagers. You actually have to know and have applicable knowledge. Well, sometimes we're not willing to do those things. So let me ask you this evening, just for a moment. We've asked the last few weeks, and you have a little sheet there, who are the five people... That you want to try to introduce to God. Who are those five people? But let's go even deeper than that. Who are people that you need to be pouring your life into? Because without you, there may be some thorns and some hard, rocky ground that if they're left alone, they fall away. We look at the parable of the sower and the seed and we're like, we, we look. In an accusing manner at those different well, if they'd had a better soil in their heart, they would have been able to hold on longer. Maybe if they had a more gracious sower, they would have been able to hold on longer. Maybe if they had a more invested gardener and farmer willing to cultivate and be get dirty and, and sacrifice some of their life. And we should be willing to do that and to follow him. For Tom's sake tonight, we will we will leave it there. We're just sharing a burden particularly about this idea or this thought, but there's, there's far more that we can do and delve into. But I just want you to... Who could you help thwart the devil's work in their life? That they may not be... I don't mean they may not be a brand new Christian. Like They, they could be a Christian for 50 years. But God may be laying them on your heart to encourage them and to help strengthen them <laughs> in their walk of faith. We all need those people. But we all need to be those people as well. I want us to take the last few minutes here tonight. And I want you to, if you're sitting as a couple, you can do it as a couple. That's fine. If you want to get with another couple. Last week's conversations went very well and went for quite a while afterwards. And I hope that you enjoyed that. But get together in a group of two, three, four people. And here's here's all I want you to do tonight. Is give a very brief, try to keep it brief, explanation of your journey to faith in the gospel. We'll include a few things, and like we talked about, in, and like you see from the book. Where were you before the gospel? What did God use to help bring you to the gospel? Maybe how has your life changed since then? You're not perfect. How, are, how is God working and changing in your life? And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of somebody, if it's applicable in your life. Who did God use when you were a new Christian, or even maybe recently, to help strengthen you and build you up and, and how did they do that? And I want you to share that this evening for the next five or six minutes as we conclude. How did you come to the gospel? Who brought you? Who was involved with that? And then also who helped bring you along after you received the gospel? What is it that God used to who is it that God used to help bring you along? Some of those are be the same people. The person that brought you to Christ also helped you in Christ. And that's great. That's a good lesson as well. well let's take these last few minutes, take three or four minutes each, and share how did you come to the gospel. And if you can't do it with another believer, what makes us think we'll be able to do it with someone that is lost? But with another believer, and rejoice in it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Your, your, your presentation is not a presentation. It does not have to be perfect. It just has to be real. Share that with each other, and then rejoice together in it. And uh, we'll close in prayer in a few minutes and be done.